All right, I'm going to start with a joke this morning. So there's this husband and wife, and they're going on vacation. And uh, the way that the schedule works out, the husband is going to go straight from a work trip to their vacation rental, and just didn't make sense for him to fly home and then the next morning get back on an airplane. So he flies straight there, and his wife is going to meet him the next day. So he gets all checked into their rental, and uh, he says, you know, maybe I should... Maybe I should uh, just touch base with my wife, let her know that I made it safe. And uh, so he pulls out his phone, and it's at this moment that he realizes that he has forgotten to charge his phone. And so he's kind of just wondering what he's going to do, and the concierge says, oh, sir, that's no problem. Here, feel free to use my phone. Now he's got to remember his wife's phone number. We don't take that for granted anymore. Maybe you don't know your wife's phone number. Maybe you don't know your husband's phone number. It's just auto-dial one or call Leah. And you don't know what your significant other's phone number is anymore. Well, that's the situation that this guy finds himself in. Well, he takes his best shot at it. Turns off, he's off by one digit. And he sends this message to a poor woman who has very recently lost her husband. And here's what he says. Hey, honey, it's been a weird trip, but I made it. I can't wait to see you tomorrow. P.S. Sure is hot down here. Hey, that's a terrible joke, and everybody who laughed at it should feel really bad about themselves right now and spend the next few minutes in prayer, okay? Uh, But hey, my name is Tony. I'm one of the pastors here. I am so glad that you are with us. If you're new to Tabor, you're going to find me up here most of the year. This is what I love doing. I love preaching, so we're glad that you are with us. Again, if you're new, find me after service in the lobby. We've got a small gift for you just to say thanks for being with us. also want to say hey to everybody who's watching on Facebook Live this morning. We're glad that you're with us. You know, you're probably going to listen a few times before you decide you'll come in person. We're good with that. If you've got any questions, just ask. We'd be happy to answer them in a Facebook message for you, okay? Um, we are in the second week of a sermon series called The Man in the Arena. And the idea is this, is that Jesus is our man in the arena. He stepped into the arena of life to rescue us, to rescue us from sin and death. And here's the best part. He was successful. He was successful. He has rescued his people from the enemy of sin and death. And now to everyone who believes him and accepts him, Jesus has given the right to be called children of God now and for all eternity. And that is good news. That's good news. I hate to get too preachy this morning as we start our sermon, but that'll preach. okay? And when I get to thinking about this idea of being rescued from sin, and when I think about this idea of being reunited with God for eternity, the easy part is talking about sin. Because at some level, we are all aware that there's some part of us that just isn't as good as it should be. And maybe we don't know to call it sin. Maybe we just think of ourselves as bad or have bad thoughts, or we just wish that this wouldn't pop into our minds. And we don't know to call it sin, but we just know that there's something about us that could be better than it is. And so we're willing to accept this concept of sin. And so a lot of people start their journey with Christ as saying, okay, I know I'm not right. If Jesus is the answer, that's great. And so that's the easy part. The hard part, the hard part is talking about eternity. Because we kind of like it here. 
We kind of like it here. We, we think this place isn't half bad. I'm going to have some lunch and I'm going to watch football this afternoon. This isn't half bad. The hard part is talking about eternity. It's kind of like these uh, three guys, close friends, and uh, they find themselves one day and they're having a, a really deep conversation and they're getting vulnerable the way men do when they sit down and talk to each other, right? And uh, so they, they're having this deep conversation and uh, one of the guys asks this, he says, when you die, what do you want people to say about you? And they all kind of get quiet for a little bit and they're thinking about their answer and thinking about their answer. And the first guy finally pipes up and says, I want people to say he was a great teacher. It makes sense. He was a middle school science teacher. He spent his entire career teaching middle school science, countless science fair projects, national conventions, and he was just invested in his students. So when he died, he wanted his... He wanted people to say he was a good teacher. The second guy thinks about it for a little bit longer. He says, I want people to say he was a great family man. He just loved his wife, loved his kids, loved his family, and would do anything for them at any point. That resonates with me. I'd love for people to say that about me when I pass. So I I get that. It makes sense to me. Third guy thinks about it a little bit longer, and he says, you know, when I die, I want people to say, look, he's moving. I thought that was funnier than you did, apparently. I'm willing to, I'm, I'm going to own it. I'm going to own it. I thought that was a better joke than it was. All right? Uh, first service didn't laugh either, so maybe that should have been an indication to me. It wasn't nearly as good as, but I, I feel like I should explain. The guys, he wants them to say, look, he's moving because he's still alive. He's not dead. Did you get it? Because that's the, all right, whatever, whatever. You wouldn't know a good joke if you heard it. Uh, I thought it was a funny joke, but for a lot of us, that's how we think about eternity. It sounds great, but not at the expense of what we have now. It sounds great, but not at the expense of giving up what we have. And so when I think about my life, I love playing with my kids. I love hearing them laugh. I love holding my wife's hand. I love stealing a kiss in public. I love shooting clay pigeons. I love sharing a good meal with great friends. And I love that feeling when you know you've hooked a big bass. I really kind of like things here. And so when we think about eternity, we go, I'm sure it's good, but can it really be better than this? I'm sure it's good. I'm sure it's fine, but can eternity really be better than this? That's the question we're going to grapple with today. Is eternity really better than what we have now? In John chapter 2, Jesus answers this question for us in a surprising way. So if you would, open up your Bibles to John chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1, or if you'd like, I'll have it up here on the screen for you. But John chapter 2, starting in verse 1, here's what we read. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem. Listen, if you're going to call your mom today, don't start with, dear woman, that's not our problem. Okay, That's just a little bit of a freebie for you as you talk to your mom this afternoon. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20, 30 gallons. And Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out, take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. And when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, of course, the servants knew where it came from, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then, when everybody's had a lot to drink, then he brings out the less expensive wine, but you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. Read, this is his first miracle. And his disciples believed in him. We'll look at this the big picture, 10,000 foot level for just a moment, and then we'll get into some of the more intricate details of this passage. But this is Jesus' first miracle, and, and frankly, it's a surprising one. It's a surprising one to me. Now, if, if I was Jesus, and I know that's a terrible way to start a sentence. Um, I know I'm not the divine. I, I get that. But, but if, if, if I were Jesus, and I were thinking about what my first miracle would be, probably wouldn't be this. You know, I think maybe I'd go with like healing a leper of leprosy or something like that. You know, leprosy in the Bible is a common metaphor used to illustrate the effects of sin in our life. So if we cleansed a leper, that would be indicative of Jesus' work to cleanse the world of sin. Or maybe Mark chapter 4, you know, he goes out on the stormy sea and he says, hush, be still, and he's displaying his power over nature. That would be a good one for a first miracle. You can cast out a demon. That'd get people's attention, right? That'd get people talking. Display your power over the supernatural forces of the world. That'd be a good first miracle. Or you could even go whole hog. You could raise somebody from the dead. But Jesus doesn't do any of that. Instead, he brings life back to a dying party. And this is a surprising Miracle. This is a surprising choice, maybe even a little bit confusing, until we realize something. We realize that this story, this miracle, is an illustration of Jesus' ministry within the timeline of the Bible. Let me explain what I mean by that. Let me explain what I mean by that. Jesus, Jesus didn't step into the arena at the very beginning of time. He didn't step into the world as a man at the beginning of time. Now, he was there at creation. He was present. He was active in creation. John chapter 1 tells us that, that Jesus was working during this creation process, but Jesus was not a man in Genesis chapter 1. He was God. It's not till many, many, many years later that Jesus steps into the arena of life as a human being. Before Jesus steps into the arena of life, people had a way of dealing with their sin. They had the law. If you obey the law, you're good. If you don't obey the law, well, that's not going to work out so good for you. It's not a good long-term solution, but because they didn't have anything to compare it to, it's okay. People at the wedding, they had wine. They thought it was okay because they didn't have anything to compare it to. Of course, it's not a good long-term solution because they didn't have enough wine. 
right? They ran out of wine. And what happens when they run out of wine? Jesus brings new wine. Jesus brings new wine. And when the master of ceremonies tastes the wine, he calls to the groom and he says, you know, people, people usually serve their best wine first. And then when people just say this really delicately, have had a little more to drink than that their palates aren't as refined as they once were. They can't tell the difference between good wine and bad wine. When people get to that point, then they serve the bad wine because nobody will be able to tell anyway. But you didn't do that. You served the bad wine first and saved the best until last. And that's an illustration of what's happening here in the timeline of the Bible. We're talking about how God replaced the law of Moses with the law of love fulfilled through Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, this isn't about a small town wedding. This miracle is an illustration of Jesus' ministry within the timeline of the Bible. Let me explain it a little bit more. Um, the old wine is made how wine is normally made. Full disclosure, I'm not an expert on wine. I know that there's red, I know that there's white, and I know that all of it's fancier than me. But that's the extent of my wine knowledge. Um, but, but this old wine that was served at the wedding was made how wine is normally made. You get grapes, you pick grapes, you put the grapes together, and you step on them. Or you put them in like this mill device, and you have a, uh, a donkey run around until all of the grapes are squashed. And then you get the juice and you put it together and you let it sit for long enough and it ferments and you've got wine. Voila. Anybody want to go into business with me? I think we could do pretty good with my understanding here. You got wine. And that's, that's how you make wine. But here's the deal. All throughout this process, there are variables that can dramatically taste, change the taste of the wine. That's why, that's why uh, wine connoisseurs, or snobs, whatever you want to call them, uh, wine connoisseurs will tell you that the same wine made with the same grapes from the same vineyard by the same people with the same recipe, only one year apart, can be dramatically different in taste and quality. Because the whole process is subject to contaminants. That's why one bottle from one company might be worth $5,000, but the next year it's virtually worthless because the whole process is open to contaminants. That's how the old wine was made, but the new wine wasn't made that way. It's not how the new wine was made. Jesus takes a look and he sees six jars, big jars, 20, 30 gallon jars, and he says to the servants, fill them up with water all the way to the top. No room for anything else in the jar except for the water. These are for people being ceremonial clean, so they are clean jars as well. And then the next thing you do is dip a little bit out and take it to the master of ceremonies. All of a sudden, it's wine. No process that's open for interpretation, no room for error, no room for contaminants, just new wine that came directly from God, free of contaminants. Kind of like how Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, yet he was without sin. We're not talking about a small town wedding here. There's one more piece that I want to I want to show you. Notice what Jesus instructs the servants to use for the the wine jugs. 
verse 6, standing nearby, there were six stone water jars. They were used for Jewish ceremonial washing. The new wine is delivered in jars that was used for ceremonial washing. And here's what we're seeing. These water jugs were used to make people ceremonially clean. Jesus stepped into the arena to make us spiritually clean. There's a difference. There's a, there's a difference between ceremony and the, the pageantry associated with that. Ceremony can be surface level. Spiritual is soul level. Jesus didn't come to make us surface level clean. He came to make us soul level clean. In this miracle, it's not about a small town wedding. It's an illustration of Jesus' ministry within the timeline of the Bible. And what we'll ultimately find is that Jesus stepped into the arena to bring joy. He came into the arena to bring joy. In the same way that he revitalized joy at that party, Jesus stepped into the arena to bring joy here. Not by being the life of the party, but by being the one who brings eternal life. And I want to show you what that looks like too. So, so at the beginning of the story, we see Mary. She comes up to Jesus and Jesus responds in a way that you shouldn't respond to your mom if you love her. Uh, she says, Jesus, they ran out of wine. And he says, what's that to me? My time has not yet come. And Mary goes to the servants and, and she says, do whatever he tells you. Which in, in retrospect is really pretty good advice for you to give somebody. Just do whatever Jesus tells you. But that's not what we're talking about here. Um, Mary goes to Jesus and says, they ran out of wine. Jesus says, my time has not yet come. And every time in the Gospel of John when Jesus says, my time has not yet come, he's talking about the time of his death. He's talking about the time of his death. So Mary says, we've got a small problem here at the party. This is a cultural, cultural no-no. And uh, Jesus says, what's that to me? It's not my time to die. Which really is kind of awkward in a normal conversation. We're out of wine. It's not my time to die. It just doesn't really flow very well. But, but here's what happens. Jesus then goes and says, fill those up with water. What Jesus is saying, why are you telling me about the wine? It's not my time to die. And then he goes and provides new wine. It's not his time to die. But let me give you an example of what's about to happen. It's not my time. It's not my time. Let me show you what Jesus says when it is his time. The Son of Man must die, as the Scriptures declared long ago. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it, and then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood which confirms the new covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What's in the cup? Wine. Not just any old wine. New wine. New wine from God, which will confirm a new covenant between God and His people. This is new wine. Something that the people had never seen before, and it turns out that just like at the wedding, God had saved the best for last. It's going to confirm a new covenant between God and His people. Why do we need a new covenant? 
Why do we need a new covenant? If there's an old one, why do we need a new covenant? Have you ever heard the saying, if it's not broke, don't fix it? Well, it turns out that this one wasn't a permanent solution. It was a temporary solution. It wasn't going to work forever. So the old covenant was built in this way. There was still this understanding of sin that people knew that they weren't quite right and there was something that needed to happen to make them right with God. And the thing that was done to make them right with God was the sacrifice of animals. In Deuteronomy, it says that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And so blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins, the blood of goats and bulls and heifers. And this process took place year after year after year after year after year, and it was good enough because the people didn't have anything to compare it to. But Jesus came to confirm a new covenant. I want you to think about the, the old covenant like this. Think about it like you've got a migraine, and you take Tylenol for it. That might work to temporarily relieve some of the symptoms, right? It might be good enough to get you through your day, and then you can get home and just collapse into bed. It might temporarily relieve your symptoms enough to get you through the day, but you can't live your life taking Tylenol for a migraine. And that's what the Old Covenant is like. It's a temporary solution for a permanent problem. And Jesus is saying, no more Tylenol. I'm going to heal you at the source. In Hebrews chapter 9, we read this. Under the old system, the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our conscience from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. Remember, ceremonial cleanliness can be surface level, but spiritual cleanliness is soul level. And Jesus came to make us spiritually clean. We're not talking about the blood of an animal to temporarily relieve the guilt of sin. We're talking about the perfect blood of Jesus that was shed for one reason, that whoever believes him and accepts him would be given the right to be called children of God now and for all eternity. This is an incredible truth, and here's what it means for us. Jesus stepped into the arena to bring joy but not just joy. Jesus stepped into the arena to bring eternal joy. There's different kinds of joy. There's joy that lasts for a moment. There's joy that lasts for a season. There's joy that lasts for a lifetime. Jesus didn't come to bring any of those things. He came to bring eternal joy. He didn't come to bring joy that lasts for a moment. Let me show you what that is. When I was little, I lived in a big city. And, uh, and so one of the things that would happen pretty often during the summer is the ice cream truck would come by. And so whenever I heard the, the first sound of the ice cream truck, and they play that at 190 decibels, so you can hear it from space. But whenever I would hear the first sound of the ice cream truck, I would run to my mom, I'd run to my dad, or if I was desperate, I'd run to my sisters, and I'd ask for a little bit of money so I could get some ice cream. They didn't always say yes, but when they did, my next step is to run as fast as I can to the end of the driveway, hoping beyond hope the whole way that I make it in time. Now, the ice cream truck drives like, two and a half miles an hour, so you always make it. But, but I would always hope, and then I'd get to the end of the driveway, and I'd wait, and I'd wait, and I'd wait. Finally, he's here. And, and I don't know what, what your uh, poison is when it comes to the ice cream truck, but 
100% of the time, here's my top choice. The strawberry shortcake bar from Good Humor. Anybody else in with the strawberry shortcake bar? The rest of you have terrible taste in ice cream, and that's okay, but I am going to judge you. And, and so I would get my ice cream, and I would take that first bite, and it is pure joy. That doesn't last very long, does it? It lasts as long as it takes for an eight-year-old to eat ice cream. And when you're eight, that doesn't take very long. Turns out when you're 31, it doesn't take very long either. <laughs> but that joy doesn't last but just a moment. Jesus stepped into the arena to bring eternal joy, not momentary joy. Jesus didn't even step into the arena to bring, uh, to bring joy that lasts for a season. Maybe you just got a promotion at your job. Congratulations. I'm, I'm really happy for you. I am. Maybe you just bought a new car. I'm really happy for you. I am. But understand that the joy that you feel based on those things. Maybe you just got married. I'm really happy for you. Maybe you just got engaged. I'm really happy for you. Those moments of joy that you feel are not eternal. I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer. They are going to last for a season. Jesus didn't come to bring joy that lasts for a season. He didn't even come to bring joy that lasts for a lifetime. Jesus came to bring a different kind of joy. A joy that will last for all eternity. A joy that comes from the knowledge that we are forgiven of our sins and we will spend eternity with a God who loves us enough to redeem us. That's where real joy comes from. We will spend eternity with a God who loves us enough to redeem us. Jesus stepped into the arena to bring joy. Eternal joy. In John chapter 2, the master of ceremonies, he, he tastes the wine, and when he tastes it, he calls the groom over and he says, you know, people, people usually serve the best wine first, and when people can't tell the difference anymore, then they start serving the cheaper wine. But you... He almost says it with an accusation. He says, but you, you serve the best last. You save the best for last. And I can almost picture God on his throne in heaven smiling as he goes, yes, I did. I did save the best for last. But as incredible as all of this sounds, we, we live in a new season of life where we can be forgiven of our sins by Jesus. If we believe Him and accept Him, we can be forgiven of our sins and we can be called children of God. But here's what I need you to know. The best is still to come. I want you to look at these words from Isaiah 25. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine. Choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain He will swallow up the coverings which is over all the people. Even the veil which is stretched over all nations, He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces, and He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. We, hey, we still have this celebration to look forward to. This is called the, the wedding feast of the Lamb, and it will be a joyous 
joyous celebration that will last for all eternity and all of God's people are invited. I want to show you one more thing. This is, this is how John describes it in Revelation 21. I'm not going to put it on the screen. I just want you to listen to these words. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among His people. He will live with them and they will be His people. God Himself will be with them and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things are gone forever. I want to make that passage a little bit more personal, a little bit more specific this morning. So in heaven, there will be no more cancer, no more divorce, rejection, loneliness, or depression, no more band-aids, tissues, crutches, wheelchairs, or pacemakers, no more radiation, chemotherapy, multiple sclerosis, diabetes, malaria, and no more hunger. There will be no more suicide, suicide bombers, school shooting, church shootings, no more trucks driven onto crowded walkways, no more metal detectors, x-rays, or accidental discharges. No more MRIs, no more middle-of-the-night phone calls, and no more crosses by the side of the road. No more miscarriages, no more child abuse, no more rape, breakups, tornadoes, sirens, typhoons, earthquakes, or floods. No more coughs, colds, flus, or flu shots. No more nightmares, near-death experiences, or nagging doubts. No more love handles, muffin tops, dad bellies, or double chins. No more bad breath, body odor, or deodorant. No more wet socks, mismatched socks, and no more socks with holes in them. No more suicide. No more syringes. No more severed relationships or sexual abuse. There will be no more post-traumatic stress. No more wars. No more evil men to go to war against. No more stubbed toes, jammed fingers, smashed hands, or farming accidents. No more yelling, fighting, or bullying. No more traffic lights or traffic. No more human trafficking. No more gossip, guilt, or grotesque injuries. No more infidelity, infertility, insecurity, injustice, infomercials, and no more inoperable tumors. No more security systems. No more amber alerts. No more silver alerts. No more sleepless nights. No more concussions. No more sensory issues. No more bipolar disorder. And no more child protective services. No more elections, political parties, philosophies. No more poisonous snakes. No more funeral homes, nursing homes, orphanages, or abortion clinics. No more waiting rooms, courtrooms, treatment centers, or rehab centers. No more pink slips, foreclosure notices, or tear signed divorce papers. No more motionless ultrasounds and no more tiny caskets. In eternity, there will be no more death, no more sorrow, or crying, or pain. All of these things are gone forever. And so when we think about heaven, it's easy for us to say, I'm sure it's good, but is it really better than this? And the answer is overwhelmingly yes. It's better than we can possibly imagine because God has saved the best for last.